this seems possible that we have reached the fifth class in the last day of the New England Bible School. And so this is the fifth portion of the class called Faith, Living or Dead. And uh, yesterday we ended our class with that sharp contention between Paul and Barnabas trying to emphasize that very uh, bitter uh, personality clashes can and do happen among the sheep of Christ. But in the case of Barnabas and Paul, we certainly know in later readings that those men certainly reconcile that little uh, difference of opinion. And we have other examples of this. And since we're finding it necessary to delete uh, several things from this class because of time, uh, we would like to take a look at Third uh, John 9th and 11th verse. And this is what John found it necessary to write. And we could be saying, was he vicious in his attack and was he just slandering someone for no cause? But this is what he wrote. I wrote unto the church or the ecclesia, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I'll remember his deeds which he doeth, pratting against us with malicious words, and not content therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. And naturally, any time you find a personality like this, they always put a facade of respectability to their actions. And it's always they're doing it for the Lord's sake. And, of course, anyone it's obvious to anyone in reading these things that this man is full of pride and he has a lot of personal ambition because it said, John said, he wanted to have preeminence in the ecclesia. Uh, has the breed died out? Or do, 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 are there diatrophies in the 20th century ecclesias? And you might say, yes. And then another question, well, are you one of them? And it might be that, yes. But you certainly would hardly admit that, would you? But here is a, a, a serious problem. And sometimes brethren can get into some awfully difficult situations and then the sheep stand aside and they're watching this contention and controversy just like two old rams butting their heads trying to get this flock to follow them and they're causing a lot of havoc and destruction. And of course, this is something that will not be tolerated by Christ as being a faithful servant. <clears throat> you know, we mentioned earlier in this class that it says, Cursed be the man that maketh arm his flesh. Now, I don't know how much you think about what is trusting in the arm of flesh. And we're capable of being trusting in human mortal flesh much more than we realize. And of course, God is always hoping and always trying to direct his children to trust only in him. Look what Job 13:15 says. And Job certainly went through a lot of trial. And yet this is what Job says. Though he slay me, 
yet will I trust in him. But I will maintain mine own ways before him. And so Job was confident. He said, God might even slay me, but I will trust. In other words, that's an active faith. Though he take that a drastic measure with me. And then it's a beautiful thing that Job says. And it wasn't any time before it all happened to him. When he says this statement in Job 1, 20 through 21. No, no, I've got something wrong. I've got to go back here and look at something. I've got a wrong reference. No, I haven't. I'm in the wrong chapter. The 21st verse of the first chapter of Job, and this is what Job said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away Blessed be the name of the Lord. And sometimes we think it's the most tragic thing is when we lose something that is very dear or precious to us. And yet it might be the most merciful and wise and kind thing that God has ever done to us when he has taken something from us that we have probably already put too much emphasis upon. And it's not impossible for that precious thing that we've set our hearts upon, be our children, be a child. You know, we have to think along these lines. Some of the things I'm going to discuss, I might preface it with a little story. There's a, an old preacher was in a rural church, and uh, he was giving his message, and there, the members were saying, Amen. Amen. And then he began to get just a little too close for comfort. And somebody leaned over to one of the mayor and said, Now he's done preaching, done quit preaching and gone to meddling. So maybe that maybe that's what I'm going to start doing. He says, Well now he's already quit preaching, now he's done going to meddling. <clears throat> I'd like for us to look at Luke eighteen, which is a very wonderful portion of scripture. And probably in your life, it has had a quite an inspiring effect in your thinking. And this little story that Jesus gives is uh, has a lot of message in it. And he, Jesus, spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint, saying, There was in a city... A judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. And there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith. And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, 
when the Son of Man cometh, will he find faith on the earth? Now let's don't confuse this, will he find the truth on the earth? Yes, he will find the truth on the earth. And if this is the way you want to look at it, it means it will be a rare commodity. But when you realize what he has said through all the previous verses, he's actually saying, well, I find men and women living their faith. Well, I find them praying and continuing to pray and trusting till I give the answer. Well, I find this type of personality in the, in the truth or in the earth when I come back. And I think that's what he's really saying. Over here on the board, we have, I have here, if we have trusted that is in the past of our life, and if we are trusting now in our present life, and we will trust in the future from this time on, then we have a wonderful promise. That means this is a person who is active in their mind of having a living faith. You know, there's one thing of having the faith, but the, the faith will not get us into the kingdom unless we live our faith. And the only possible way we can prove to God that we are faithful is to how we act and react in living this mortal sojourn. Now, in regard to that, let's look at Habakkuk uh, 2, 4. And I want to read just the last portion of that scripture. The just shall live by his faith. Now, what does he mean there? It can mean two things. If the just shall live by his faith, does that mean he'll be living according to his faith that he has? He'll living, be living a daily faith? Or is he also saying that the just shall live by faith or they'll gain eternal life because they did live faithful lives? And it can be both or one or the other. But I think it includes both. The just shall live by his faith. In other words, that man or woman who has manifested manifested a faithful life, they will be crowned with life. They will get life because they live their faith. And, and a just person or a righteous person is only so because he or she is living a life of faith. Now we're going to say something that might be somewhat uncomfortable and a shocker, but I think it needs to be said. And before I say this, I, I am fully aware that there are people in this audience that have a greater faith than I do. I know people in the brotherhood that I admire and honor because I think that I'm seeing, a, seeing some men and women living a very faithful life and they are an inspiration to me. And whatever I might say in this class today is not a put down in any means. But my concern is this. Are we as trusting on God as we pretend to be? And I thought that last class on the 23rd Psalm was a beautiful class and it was a marvelous introduction to the things that I've been trying to say in the past and what I would like to say today. That we do have a shepherd 
And there's nothing in our lives that he does not understand. I don't care what your problem is right today, right this minute. And I bet you there's some heavy burdens in this audience if you just fathom them out. If you just get aside and listen to some of them. Well, now listen, you have a shepherd that knows these things. Are you going to do what Jesus says in that 18th chapter of Luke? Pray, don't faint. And all of us are fainters. I'm a fainter. I, there's, there's times in my life when I wanted to give up. And there's people that had a lot harder time in their life than I have. The name of this article is Blind Spots, and it's out of the March 1981 testimony. He says, yet just because the world is so much with us, it succeeds in imposing its wisdom, you know, so-called wisdom on us in all kinds of ways through forgetting how warped human nature really is. We may all too easily allow ourselves to be brainwashed into accepting worldly attitudes or evaluations. There is nothing that a man has that has not come to him by the grace and kindness of God. Now, I could read the whole article, but I don't like anyone to read anything to me too long. So I'm not going to read to you too long. But he says, now, a third suggestion which may be confidently counted on to horrify and scandalize nine-tenths of the Christian worldwide. Now, that includes a lot of them here, if that's a true statement. This is that our entire community decide that it can and should do without insurance. Whew. Man, man. Now, am I saying drop your insurance? Brother Ned says don't have any more insurance. No, I'm not saying that. Faith is such an intimate, personal thing. You've only, you only do these things when your faith and when your intimacy with God grows enough that you can say that you will take certain pathways that ordinarily the common herd might not take. Long ago, the world in its wisdom came to the conclusion that it is far better to depend, to depend on insurance than on God. Indeed, insurance is necessary, they say, in order to safeguard against acts of God those who believe in God, there is a power about this logic which leaves the present writer bemused. Scores of Bible passages bear witness to the truth that the key virtue, get that, the key virtue in the Christian life is faith in God, the God who controls storm and earthquake and without whom not even an obscure sparrow falls to the ground. Yet we flatly refuse to believe that the same God can overshadow us with all the care we need and that he will bring into our lives, get this, he will bring only into our lives such cataclysm or adversity as is good for us or for others who know us. So we take out insurance policies to indemnify us against the damaging results of fire, ill health, or accident. 
at a very conservative estimate, there must be at least a million, of course this is talking about English, at a very conservative estimate, there must be at least a million pounds a year of the money God has given to Christadelphians being paid out to thriving insurance companies who gladly pay back a small portion to compensate the few who have been hit by uncontrollable contingency. Who shows most brainless, I mean, pardon me, that's not what it says. <laughs> I can't even read. Who shows most business shrewdness here? Those who share the faith of Abraham are the directors of the insurance companies. I could read more, but I think you're getting the message. The world with its usual slick cleverness has sold us the idea without us even ever being aware of it that we have been conned. Now what in the world am I bringing this up to you about? Now you think about it. Say for instance, you no longer can have an insurance, any insurance protection in your life. All of that good stuff has been eliminated one way or the other. Are we then really totally helpless and the God of Israel says, wow, I can't help them. Look, they've, they've let go their policies. And I made the statement, you know, Job says, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And God says, I will never, or is it Christ? Well, it's God in Christ. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And of course, we realize there's another scripture that says, God only helps them who helps themselves. So just how are we going to balance out in these things? That's up to the very individual themselves. No person can put on another person a particular element of faith that you might have and say, you've got to do this also. It's just like we didn't say at the first part of this class in the week that we should not use doctors, we should not use medicine, we should not use hospitals. What we are saying is this. Our first thoughts and deep sincerity is trust in Yahweh. He is our rock of refuge. Now, whether we are living that type of life, God knows. So what we're saying is, put trust first where it belongs and other things will take care of themselves. We know that we need help. They're there. And by the way, God many times brings mortal help to us. That's a lot of times where His help comes from. We just want some balance in this thing. We want ourselves to be more childlike and to draw near to God and reach out our little childlike hand and reach out for that help that is definitely promised all the way from Genesis to Revelation. The Christadelphians are too smug and too content with academics. Academics in the truth will not get you into the kingdom. It's only a living faith that will get you into the kingdom. We know we've got the truth. There's no doubt about it. But do we have the faith of Abraham. <coughs> James 2.
This means what it says. 14 through 26. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man may say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give... I've lost my place. And one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, now get this, Christadelphian faith, the academic faith, the, the, the faith that you need, in other words, the gospel. We've got the gospel. But that's not what this chapter is talking about. Even so faith, a living, daily faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. I don't care how much you may know the truth. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, I have works. Well, show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, and everybody in this audience believes there is one God. Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works? And by works was faith made perfect. And he, the scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only? Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, or breath of life is dead, so faith without works is dead. Now what if Abraham had said to God, when he said, Get thee out of thy, out of thy country and thy kindred, and what if Abraham says, I don't want to? Or he might have said, Well, where do you want me to go? And he didn't tell him where. But Abraham didn't question it. And do you think it was a concern to Abraham? Do you think that if you had to make a change in your job, and some of you have made changes in your job, and don't tell me that you didn't enter into that phase of your life with apprehension. It's fearful. Going in to the unknown. I haven't had that experience, and I know some of you have. And you've got a stronger faith than I have in that regard. Boy, am I chicken. I got into one little old two-bit job, and I've been there for 40 years. But I'm happy to be there for 40 years. I don't need much. And I'm so thankful that God has given me what I do have. But some of you have had some traumatic changes in your life. And you're like Abraham. You went out not knowing. You didn't really know whether this was going to work out. And then that was a tremendous test of faith for Abraham. And the man passed it. He passed the test. Have you passed the test? You know, I at least give some of you, or maybe all of you, 
I give you the credit for having passed some tests. And I think I know that you've passed tests. And you know how I know you have passed some tests in your life successfully in God's sight? Because you're still in the body. And I know some of, some of the problems some of you have. And you're still, and this is beautiful. And this is a comfort. And there, by the way, there was something comforting that, that Gardner said, and I can't quite get on to it. I can't think of it. But it was to the fact that sometimes, and it actually does, sometimes things happen in our life, and we go through a shadow of death, or we go through a valley. And what a marvelous inspiration and what a marvelous encouragement we give to that little lamb. We've gone through it. And we knew God was there. He led us through the storm. And here comes another little lamb going right through the same pass. And they find out that you have already gone through it. And you you can actually go to them and in quiet and in private and say, I know how you feel. I've been there. Listen, it's going to work out all right. Listen, it will. You stay with God. Do you think that's inspirational? I had a person tell me one time I was having trouble in my life. And, and by the way, don't you sisters ever forget that you can have some beautiful influence. This woman said one sentence to me, and I said this probably before at Bible school. And if you've heard it once, I don't care if you heard it 12 times. It still has something to say. She simply said, Brother Ned, hang in there. And I was about ready to give up. Heard that little sentence. You think that God maybe directed her to say that to me? I'm not mad. <laughs> Second Kings five. We're kind of like this. One through four. Now this is an alien. Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away a captive out of the land of Israel, a little maid, and she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said unto her mistress, Would God, my Lord, were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him, that is, her master, of his leprosy. And one went in and told his Lord, saying, Thus and thus saith the maid that is of the land of Israel. Now, let's pick it up. I don't want to read the whole thing. Let's go down to the ninth verse. So Nathan gets interested in this little uh, uh, advice. So Naaman goes to, to Israel, and this we pick it up in the ninth verse. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariot and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come unto thee again, again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. But Naaman was wroth. He blew his stack. He was totally infuriated and went away and said, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God, and strike his hand over this place, over the place, and recover the leper. Oh, he just thought, well, just wave your magic wand over me, see. And then he goes on further to say, Well, are not Abana and uh, Farpar rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Huh. 
Who does he think he is telling me to wash in the Jordan? We've got rivers better than that in my land. I don't have to come all the way to get healed in that type of thing. May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away and went away in a rage. And his servants came near. And boy, I'll tell you, you have to be careful when you come in near to someone that's got that kind of a, a, a temper. And his servants came near and spake unto him and said, and I bet they had to come real quiet to him. Let me tell you, you know what? A soft answer turneth away wrath. Boy, when you see somebody just really getting red in the face in their building, you better be careful what you say if you're going to say anything at all. And his servants came near and they spake unto him. And I can just imagine how quiet they said this. And they said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee to do some great thing, wouldest thou not have done it? How much rather then, when he saith to thee, Wash and be clean. And the message got through to him and he went down and dipped himself how many times? Seven times. He had to do it seven times. Five times do it? Six times? Four, three? No. Seven. In Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Brothers and sisters, can you imagine that man, and I don't know how long he had this frightening disease, can you imagine how relieved that man he came up and he dipped himself one time and he came up and he and he saw that he was here can you imagine the elation he must have felt would you be elated if you went and and and, and a disease was finally you said it was told to you you don't have it anymore you think you'd walk out feeling you'd probably sing and skip and hop and jump and dance and they say look at that crazy fool but you'd have something to be happy and skipping about wouldn't you of Israel and go back to the heathen land of here and build me an altar to the God of Yahweh. Now, what, why are we bringing this up? Because here an alien is having faith in the God of Israel. And by the way, Jesus says something about this. Some of his prophets. Can you imagine a Christadelphian being advised to go somewhere else to get help because there wasn't a Christadelphian that was faithful enough to give you help. And that's what some of the prophets did. And they were very angry when Jesus brought this up to them about things that happened in the Old Testament. He said, there's a lot of widows in Israel in that time, but how come it that I sent the, my servant so-and-so over there? And you can believe, can believe that they were infuriated because he was condemning them for their lack of activity. And they called themselves the chosen people. And, of course, that's what we call ourselves. And rightly so. But are we really living the truth? I had a hard time really believing this. You know, I, I'm ashamed to say, even today, that I have little doubts. And that's called, that shows that carnal Adamic nature creeping in. I, I, I Look at this. Wrong. And when I say it, you could quote it from the audience. Eight, Romans 8, 28. But let's look at it. I don't care how familiar it is. It has something to say. Oh, I'm always in the wrong place. I'll tell you, I don't even know whether the New Testament, where it is. Romans 8, 28. 
Now, do we really know this? Do we really know this? It says, and we know that all things work together for good. To any and everybody? No. To them that love God. To them who are the called according to his purpose. Brothers and sisters, can you say, can anyone say within your own mind that this is a true statement? It says there, And we know that all things, not some things, and a few things, but all things work together for good to them that love God. And to them are they called according to prayer. Are you called according to the purpose of God? You know, you may think I dwell too much on, upon tombstones and cemeteries. But I also had an occasion to go to Rockaway. Is that Rockingham Church? And I went out there, Jim Lay and I went out there looking for the oldest tombstone. And again, the message came forth very loud and clear. There are people that have been molding in the grave there for two centuries. You know, there's a scripture that says, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, I don't know whether any of God's servants are out there in that cemetery. There may be. But from some of the things that we read on the tombstones, it would be very unlikely because most of the things that we read were going to heaven. And so, on this cemetery on this hill, with thousands of bodies, and there's thousands of bodies out there on that other hill, and most of them, I, I think you can be sure that God is not their God. And God is not going through Christ to disturb their graves. And let me tell you, if, we're, if we are basically fleshly and wicked in our life, Judas Iscariot was so tremendously disturbed by what he had done to the Master. The pain and the agony was so great, that man committed suicide to get out of his misery. And that happened something like 2,000 years ago. And so he has, he's been in the grave far longer than anyone out there in these graveyards. Now the question is, will Judas Iscariot wake up and face the music? This man is going to wake up. And what did Jesus say about this man? He said it had been better for that man to have never been born. And the, can you imagine the agony that's going to confront that man when his consciousness comes back, his eyes open and, and he comes out and he hears and says, and he knows immediately he's going to, all of it's going to flood back into his conscious mind. And we're going to be the same way. Whether we're living or whether we're dead. It might be easy to think that, well, I'm not going to wake up and I'm going to have to suffer anymore anyway, so I'm just going to live my life the way I want to. But if you've made the real covenant, you're coming out of that grave. And look at Saul. And look at Jonathan. Look at David. Now, those three men are coming out of the grave. How do you think Saul's going to feel? How do you think David's going to feel? And Jonathan. They're going to have different 
Well, I think David and Jonathan are going to have similar feelings. But Saul, he is the most pathetic, tragic figure probably in the Scriptures. There is so much said about this man. Now, why is there so much said about Saul? Is he an example to us? He is an example. He's a very serious example to us. And let me tell you one thing. We better get it straight. There is some Saul in every one of us. There's some Esau in every one of us. We might be this very day selling our birthright, birthright for a mess of pottage. And what is that mess of pottage? Because we're living after the lust of the eye, we're living after the lust of flesh, and the pride of life. <coughs> and did Esau, did Esau really want what he lost? He wept for it. He said, Father, Father, have you no other blessing? He said, I don't. Today, today is the day of salvation. You've got to work it out today. You may not have tomorrow. I may not have tomorrow. And even if you've got three years, you've still got to work each day. You can't do anything about yesterday. You can't do anything about tomorrow. But you can live. You can be trusting, living and trusting today. And if you're living and trusting today, maybe you will trust tomorrow. You'll, you will also, when tomorrow comes, you'll be trusting again. So if we have trusted, are trusting, will trust, then we'll go into the kingdom if we're living faithful. And I don't always feel good about myself. I've had some fears about myself at times. And it says, perfect love casteth out fear. I don't feel too good about myself at times. Do you always feel comfortable that you're doing okay? Or do you also have some anxiety? Look, I may not be what I think I am or what I hope to be. Hebrews 11:13 These all died in faith not having received the promises but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and they were pilgrims on this earth and here's something that ties us in with the faithful of every age. And it is really beautiful, but it is very sobering if you think about it. Look at that 39th and 40th verse. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Who's the they? Did you notice the catalog of faithful people in that 11th chapter? They are going to get it at the same time we do. They without us shall not be made perfect. You know, Jesus is asking us to do this. Look at Matthew 16. And this is what's hard for us to do, evidently. Twenty-four and twenty-five of Matthew 16. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, 
Let him deny himself or herself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. What is he saying there? He's saying just exactly what I made mention a day or two ago. Everybody in this room, some more, some less, everybody, everyone, saving a piece of the action for ourselves. We just can't seem to be able to give our complete will to God. And that's exactly what God is asking of us. And it is a sacrifice. Are we willing to make the sacrifice? Now that's about all I have to say. And I don't, what, do you have anything to say? Do you have any question or comment? I have enjoyed very much being at this New England Bible School. And it's my hope and my prayer that something in all this instruction from the children all the way up to the adult classes has in some way been pleasing to our Father. And there that scripture in Psalm 127, 1. Except the Lord build a house, they labor in vain who build it. I hope and pray that something's been done here this week that really is, in some small measure, has been pleasing to God and to our Master. Thank you.